Welcome back to Instagram Live with Barbell Medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. It is February 18th. It's Tuesday. I don't know if there's anything special about this Tuesday. Uh, we're doing Instagram Live. So what that means is that you get to ask questions, and I try to provide answers to the best of my ability. If I skip your question, it's not because I don't like you. Unless I do, in which case, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> um, but your best bet is to head over to our forum, www.barbellmedicine.com backslash forums, I believe, and then you can register there and ask your questions. We're pretty active on that. Otherwise, you can wait for another Instagram Live. Or, uh, you know, if you have a burning question you really want to answer, you can shoot us an email. And uh, sometimes we get to those. Other times we direct you to our forum. In any event, other updates. We've got two new YouTube videos out, one with Hassan, one with uh, Leah. We've got another one with Tom coming up shortly. Another podcast going up. A um, couple new articles in the works. Hopefully those are up by this weekend. Our newsletter is going out on Friday. So if you're not subscribed to the newsletter, head over to the barbellmedicine.com website. Sign up for the newsletter. That would be useful for you if you want to get all the latest nuanced information delivered to your inbox every week. New merch is coming. So stay, stay tuned for that. Otherwise, you know, just out here living my best life. All right. Scrolling up. Trying to find some questions. Invite your friends. Text them. Get them over here. Uh, all right. First question, Alex, Alex Chevery, should you take creatine at the same time every day or before a workout, even if you work out at a different time each day? So this question supposes that there is a relationship, a temporal or time-related relationship between when you take creatine and its ergogenic or performance-enhancing uh, effect, which there's not one. Um, provided you take the creatine every day, it reaches steady state in the levels of the muscles, <clears throat> increases the creatine uh, content in the muscles, and, there, and then you get the, the benefit from that. And what does it do? It increases cellular energy, so increased time to fatigue so you can handle uh, more volume and train a little bit harder. Also draws water into the muscle, uh, which is an anabolic stimulus. And so if you're dehydrated, for example, your anabolic uh, sort of signaling is blunted or attenuated or diminished in another said differently. And then the third thing it does, it increases satellite cell uh, signaling, which is basically uh, the, these are pools of stem cells for the muscle that uh, get signaled via uh, mechanical forces and muscle tissue breakdown and creatine and testosterone also increase that signal so you get more satellite, satellite cell recruitment and that tends to uh, drive uh, greater gains in both strength and muscular hypertrophy. How much? Depends on the individual. So about a third of people will not respond to creatine. They're non-responders. Those individuals are thought to already have like pretty high levels of creatine in their muscles. A third of people will have great response to uh, taking supplemental creatine, and a third of people will have uh, somewhere in the middle, so pseudo-responders, so you are uh, uh, hybrid responders. So you have a 66% chance of getting some benefit out of it. The risks of taking creatine are relatively low, uh, very low, and I would direct you to an article that I wrote uh, on uh, creatine intake, um, which you can find on our website and other websites like it. And I also did a YouTube video, Five Things You Should Know About Creatine. All right, I think we talked about creatine enough. Let's move on. Best cue to help with lack of upper back tightness coming out of the rack in the squat. So a couple things. One, I don't think there's a best cue for all individuals for any particular form deviation. 
Second thing, uh, I don't know that I would really be thinking about upper back tightness coming out of the rack. I don't think that's something I cue folks a lot about or even th I certainly don't think about that myself. That being said, if you had somebody who as soon as they got under the bar and picked up the barbell that everything they were, you know, moving around a lot and wiggling, you might just, you know, have them try to stay tighter. <laughs> um, yeah, but if you're, t if you're saying you have some thoracic flexion coming out of the rack, that's not unusual. Um, I would just make sure that you kind of got rid of most of that prior to initiating your descent. So you might think proud chest, you might think puff chest, puff your chest out. Excuse me, you might think elbows down in addition to that um, before you do your Valsalva. But there's not one cue, excuse me, and I certainly can't uh, cue you from here because I can't see it. All right. Best stretch for my hips. I have trouble squatting deep with front hip pain. Thanks. Yeah, I would just squat more. That doesn't necessarily mean squat more with a barbell, but you know, if you need a good warm up to get your make sure your squat depth is good, which I don't necessarily know that it's not good, uh, I would recommend that you do more squatting. So that might be an assisted squat where you're holding on to the side of a rack and you're squatting down well below parallel, pausing at the bottom, hanging out there for a few seconds, and then doing a few reps there. Uh, before you take away the uh, assistance and you might even then go to a goblet squat and then go to a squat with a bar on your back. But I wouldn't do any static stretching or partner assisted stretching or dynamic stretching outside of just doing the squat. That's what I would do. If you have pain in your hips um, and it persists while you're squatting, then I think you might be a candidate for some uh, additional modifications to your training. So we have an article. It's called Pain and Training, What Do?, it's kind of like an overview of what you might do to self-manage this. If you've had it for a long time, I think getting uh, some professional insight on this would be a good idea. And I would recommend one of our pain and rehab consultation, uh, uh, one, of our, one of our pain and rehab consultations um, with Dr. Derek Miles, Dr. Michael Ray, or Dr. Michael Amato. These guys are great at what they do, and they can help you. Scrolling. The Alan Aragon. Well, this just got a lot more, we just got a lot more uh, credible. What's going on, man? Alan, also, like, are you on the West Coast? Are we actually neighbors? I, I, for whatever reason, I thought that you lived in California, but I, that, I might be making that up. Can I expect to pull less with a mixed grip versus straps? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily think so. If your mixed grip is untrained, perhaps, but, like, my mixed grip deadlift is higher than my best straps deadlift. Um... Yeah, I think if you had adequate experience at both, I don't think there's going to be a huge difference between the two outside of like a, a repetition effort kind of set, uh, meaning that like you're doing multiple, you know, many, many reps and grip fatigue would be a factor there. Alternatively, if you struggle with grip, you might see a big difference between your straps and your uh, mixed grip, but I actually deadlift more mixed grip than I do without with straps. Not lifting related, MD related. Okay, thoughts on helmets for babies to correct flat spots. Yes, yeah, so this is actually, oh, what is this, craniosynostosis? Oh, man, that's going to bother me. In any event, this is like an actual condition, and so it depends, on, uh, it depends on the size, the age, uh, a bunch of other different factors. I think they believe there's a grading scale here, and so um, doctors who see this stuff every day, so your pediatrician, um, uh, we'll be able to manage that appropriately. Yep. Tried to deadlift with a rogue stiff bar and calibrated plates. My one at eight wouldn't even budge off the floor. Is that normal? 
I think if you're normally used to pulling on a deadlift bar, for example, with bumpers, you know, it's going to feel different with a stiff bar and calibrated plates. Uh, that being said, I think your one at eight probably should go under most conditions unless you're overestimating what your one at eight should be. Um, relying on the calculator, for instance, a little too heavily compared to what your warmups actually feel like. Because you probably knew that or at least felt something like that going into that set, right? It's not like you just, oh, surprise, I'm not as strong as I thought I was today. You know, the warm-up before that probably didn't feel so good. Uh, on the other hand, if it did feel good and you were like, yeah, I'm just sticking to the plan, like like I think Drake said that, stick to the plan, um, <laughs> and it didn't move, then maybe you had an acute sort of technique issue that limited your efficiency on the lift. So all those things are possible. How much do you think you and Austin can tandem deadlift? Well, Austin's best deadlift 705, my best deadlift 738. Not to be confused with one of the great songs of the late uh, of the early 2000 teens, uh, Fetty Wap, Trap Queen. Um, I think I think 1400 pounds would be a stretch because you know, say we're both going to deadlift over 700 pounds means we're both you know re really strong at the same time. The universe doesn't like that. So usually only one of us is actually like real strong at, the, at, a, at a time. Um, and I think tandem deadlifting is different, right? So let's conservatively say like 1250. If one day 100 kilos is RPE 8 and in a couple of days 90 kilos is RPE 8, do they both produce the same outcome? Uh, what outcome are you testing? If you're testing strength, um, you know, probably you you would ideally want the trend to go up with how much weight you were handling if that's the same test. So for example, if you did 100 for one rep at RP8 and then the next week or two days later you did the same exercise and you did 90 kilos for one rep at RP8, that doesn't mean much to me because performance levels are going to wax and wane, ebb and flow, up and down throughout the week, throughout the month, you know, so whatever. That doesn't really mean much. Um, if Week by week, your numbers are going down, down, down. I think that probably portends poor strength outcomes. So that's force production measured in a specific context. There are many different kinds of strength. For instance, there's speed strength or high-velocity force production. There's also max effort strength. There's strength endurance. Look, we go on and on and on. Um, for hypertrophy, it's probably the same. Yeah. Can powerlifting and rheumatoid arthritis work out? Hey, that's like a pun. And uh, yes, I have a few clients, or I have had, well, I've had many clients with rheumatoid arthritis, now that I think about it, um, just considering how, how often that actually, we see that in the population and how many people train. So I feel like I've had my, over my fair share. Um, so yeah, it can work. Thoughts on smokeless tobacco or nicotine in sports? Specifically, resistance training. Yeah, so uh, smokeless tobacco and nicotine are obviously not the same thing, although smokeless tobacco does contain nicotine. Smokeless tobacco I would not recommend just in general because the risks are substantial with respect to oropharyngeal and stomach and other digestive uh, GI tract cancers in addition to um, actually some skin cancers too. Uh, and bladder cancer and kidney cancer, some types of kidney cancer. So it just increases your risk of cancer. Easy take home there. So would not recommend. Uh, with respect to nicotine, there's some uh, potential ergogenic benefit or performance benefit with respect to 
cognitive tasks and maybe uh, increasing arousal for some other performance tasks, but it's not really been well established that nicotine improves, you know, force production or decreases uh, RPE or increases time to fatigue or anything like that. So I don't think it'd be part of like a sort of, you know, pre-workout strategy that I would recommend. Lean body mass and cardiac health correlate. Mm, so we have lean body mass and all-cause mortality correlations in large studies. Um, and inclu- that includes uh, risk of death from cancer and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So yes, there's a relationship there. Um, but as far as um, actual, like the relationship between lean body mass and cardiorespiratory fitness, it's a little... It's a little more nuanced. We don't see that direct, that linear correlation. There's likely some correlation, particularly if you um, just surveyed everyone, because most people who exercise tend to have more lean body mass than those who don't exercise. So you would see people with higher levels of cardiorespiratory fitness on average have higher levels of lean body mass. But the fact, but that's kind of a spurious finding, not necessarily indicative that of like, oh, you should try to jack up your lean body mass in order to drive up your cardiorespiratory fitness. Will you be dining at Luna Maya when you're in Virginia for the March seminar? I was just talking about that. So if you guys don't know this about me, I went to medical school in Norfolk, Virginia at Eastern Virginia Medical School, where uh, I spent four years there. And my favorite restaurant was Luna Maya. So there's a high likelihood that I go to dinner there. Yes. Nice intros for questions with Leah and Hassan. Who is your favorite Mortal Kombat character? All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. I I played plenty of Mortal Kombat, and if I had if you forced me to pick a character, it's gonna be Raiden because that dude could do that teleportation thing, and I thought that was fantastic, blew my mind. That being said, I am a Street Fighter bro at heart. Street Fighter, and who am I gonna play with on Street Fighter? Pfft. Ryu. Duh. Who else? Let's see. I'm running the hypertrophy template, Jay Conley says, and I was wondering if I should use straps for the high rep deadlifts. Yeah, I would. I would. I think that's reasonable. Emojin Russell. Dizzy on testosterone replacement therapy, yet all bloods look fine and hypogonadism is gone. Worth asking doctor to switch over to injectables? So I don't think there's any relationship between your TRT or somebody on TRT and dizziness. That would not be something that I would try to connect there. So that, and additionally, I do not think that injections for TRT are a better option than the cream unless uh, contamination is an issue or somebody has very limited amount of area that they can like apply the cream to due to like burns or other skin conditions or they just don't like it. Injectables tend to not have as great of a steady state level and then there are other problems with that. So wouldn't recommend that in general. Is doing the same exercise three times per week a risk for overuse injury? Jared Nelson asks. I mean, you can't really answer that question without context, right? So how long is somebody doing that? What's the their total program? Is that, are they only doing the same exercise, like one exercise three times per week? Um, are they doing it, um, you know, is that in the context of a five-day-per-week program, a four-day-per-week program? How many other exercises are they doing that train similar body parts? Um, you know, how well-trained is the individual? Are they just starting or are they, you know, a tr- seasoned athlete? 
So I can't say one way or the other. I think that hyper-specialization, so doing the same exercises over and over and over again, excuse me, should be reserved for short periods of time leading up to a contest or test that matters. I don't think that novices, beginners, or even general strength trainees who aren't necessarily geek, super geeked out or, or, or really wanting to drive up their 1RM should have a substantial amount of spe- uh, specializa- specialization in a particular lift. I think that you should get good at doing a lot of different kind of lifts. Build your physical 401k, this big, deep, uh, robust sort of physical base that you get to draw from. Do you take food with you when you travel or do you cook wherever you go? I do not take food with me when I travel. I assume by travel you mean like getting on a plane. Um, Yeah, so I don't take food with me because it's usually frowned upon. Unless unless probably like a protein bar. I'll take like a protein bar with me, um, something quick. But otherwise, I'll get food wherever I'm at and I'll cook. If you stop taking creatine, does your muscles become flaccid? Well, let's think about this for a second. So flaccid paralysis indicates uh, a neurological problem that uh, means the nerve is no longer attached to the motor units that house the muscle fibers for that muscle. So for example, if you transected a nerve that uh, uh, particularly specifically a lower motor neuron um, that innervates a muscle, then you would get flaccid paralysis. It would like you know, twitch for a little bit and then stop and it would be flaccid. Uh, since creatine does not affect the motor nerves in any way that we can ascertain at this time, it's unlikely that it <laughs> would produce flaccid paralysis. If you're asking, do the muscles change size, right, uh, after you stop taking creatine, it, again, seems to not be supported by the current evidence. So, uh, most of the time, people get to keep the gains that they get from training from creatine um, when they uh, stop taking creatine. Have you heard of this company called Lumen that uses a breathalyzer and says that they can tell if you are currently using fat or glucose for energy? I'm not uh, familiar actually with that company, but yeah, it's a respiratory quotient analyzer. We've had this technology for like, I mean, to my knowledge, at least 30 years. So, but the point is, why does it matter? It doesn't. That's the, that's the point. It doesn't matter. Are you burning carbs or fat? It's just a respiratory quotient um, analyzer. It's not really useful for anything. <clears throat> is the bodybuilding template still in the works? Yes, it is very close to being done. Bicep. No, I'm just kidding. It is almost done. When would you add wraps in the powerlifting two template if you were prepping for a wrapped meet? Uh, eight weeks is the latest that I'd put. Eight weeks out from the meet is the latest I'd start using them. So, you know, if you said seven weeks and you were like wanted to fight me about it, that's fine. But se- you know, seven eight weeks. Do you randomly scream "Train Untamed"? Uh, I randomly uh, scream "You're Undertrained," which is almost the same. All right, Asta PF, what's up, Doc? Do you guys remember those Budweiser commercials, or am I just too old? What's up? No, it's just me. I'm just talking to myself now. Uh, this is 
This is living in 2020. All right. Uh, what's up, Doc? I know that you guys say it's hard to define good posture. That's true. But can exercise improve the aesthetic of your resting posture? Uh, I, I guess that goes, it's just kind of a circular sort of question because how do you define good posture? You know, sure, if somebody loses weight, gains muscle, improves their self-confidence, maybe they carry themselves in a little bit more socially acceptable manner. They walk around, for example, with a prouder chest. Is that possible? Sure. But you have to define your, your terms here and then see if on average your intervention, which in this case is exercise, um, actually improves that. And so I don't think there's good evidence that to not only suggest that, but then also define all these terms so we could actually even have an intelligent conversation about this. What do you think about cardiac rehabilitation and its place in healthcare? Yes, yeah, so cardiac rehab, um, just broad strokes sort of uh, definition about this. This is a specialized, basically, exercise program for people who had a heart attack. Other people, some other cardiac conditions are involved there, but just, you know, general kind of sense of what this is. It's post-heart attack exercise that's uh, usually done at the, either at the hospital, the cardiology clinic. It's really usually ran by uh, exercise physiologists. Um, or people with like an ACSM, health and fitness specialist cert, or a cardiac rehab cert, something like that. In any event, it is vastly underutilized. It is underutilized. Um, I would be happy if we could get, you know, 75% of people post-heart attack or, you know, uh, other cardiac condition that qualifies for this to enroll in this stuff, but we're not even getting close. It is a huge problem with it being underutilized. Um, so I think that we should, you know, get more people enrolled in this stuff who qualify. And um, ideally, there'd be like a cardiac, you know, uh, not rehab, but prehab, <laughs> where you just have more people pushing the guidelines based physical activity. That's the that's what I would do. Coach. Oh, Coach Jamar tricks cues for keeping your butt down during maximal bench press. This is not something I've had a problem with. Um, but with lifters that do have problems with this that I've coached, I usually have them adjust their, their feet position around either wider or out further out in front of them. Um, so where they can't actually drive their hips up. Also, if you're driving your hips up, you're not really pushing back. That's the other thing. So I tend to, again, make sure that people try to drive their heels forward away from the bench. Um, and then the last thing is you can actually pinch the bench with your quads. That's another easy trick too. Did you see Sean Noriega's 500-pound bench? I did not. That's pretty big. Think he'll be able to overthrow Russ Orhi? Uh, no, I don't. And I actually think that the next person to like assert themselves in the 83-kilo classes is going to be an unknown individual who just decided to pick up powerlifting and has better set up for this than anybody we've seen so far. So, Xander Bear Claw. Sick name. Any tips for squeezing the lower back into flexion? I have trouble getting my lower back flat during conventional. So I assume you mean extension, not flexion. I assume that's what you're meaning. Um, and then I don't know if I would focus much on getting your back into extension. So typically we cue people just squeeze your chest up. If you're not getting that, um, you can lay on the ground and do supermans. You can do back hyperextensions. Anything like that would all, all be allow you to feel the area. But I, don't, I just don't think that your... Uh, sort of assessment is likely accurate. You're probably doing it just fine. For sumo pulls, would you still use the five-step deadlift setup? Yes. You will, they will, uh, sumo deadlifters do actually get a little closer to the barbell uh, because their toes are more turned out in general. 
Um, and so there's less anterior translation of the knee. Yeah, but it's five step setups fine. I can only squat balanced if I am very leaned over with my eyes looking about a foot in front of my feet. Is this okay? Sure. I don't know that there's a specific place that you need to look in order to live a full and complete life when you're talking about squatting. So, is sumo deadlift easier on the lower back? Nope. <laughs> I love questions like that. Nope. <laughs> there you go. Easy. I think I injure it too often doing conventional and considering doing sumo. Yeah, so I, my thoughts are that your programming probably needs to be adjusted versus a particular technique. Yeah, likely the load management issue, not necessarily you just doing conventional, not sumo. Jordan, is whey protein detrimental to kidneys in the long run? Nope. Emphatically, no. In fact, the longest study on this, I believe, so I know the highest dose study was by Jose Antonio and crew. I think this was close. It was like four and a half grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. And they looked at that for a year. And I think the longest study on this uh, where people who were taking whey is either five years or 10 years. I can't remember offhand. And yet, there's just no evidence there that it really does anything. When Every time you eat a meal that has protein in it, the filtration rate on your kidneys goes up. But when you actually look at long-term data, so like do people who eat a higher protein diet have more chronic kidney disease? Or specifically, do people who have eat a low-protein diet who have chronic kidney disease, for example, do they have better outcomes than those who have higher dietary protein? And no, they don't. Um, oh, and some of that is because they end up losing a little bit more muscle mass. Yeah. Do you think that the increased movement variability involved in bodybuilding contributes to slightly lower injury rates? Um, no. I actually think the reason why – there's a few reasons why bodybuilding, in my estimation, has lower injury rates than things like powerlifting or CrossFit or weightlifting or strongman or uh, Highland Games. And so just this overview here. So the average injury rate per 1,000 participation hours, about two to four injuries per 1,000 participation hours for all barbell sports. So that's all comers. Bodybuilding is a little bit under two. Powerlifting and weightlifting are about the same, right in that two to three, two to four range. CrossFit's in there too. So when people are like, CrossFit is – has a higher risk of injury. It's like, mm, citation desperately needed. And then, yeah, sure, strongman and highland games tend to have a much higher uh, risk. We're talking like six to seven injuries per thousand participation hours, which are all much lower than other non-contact sports like skiing, for example. And in contact sports, geez, you can't even, can't even fathom the discrepancy there. We're talking about like 81 injuries per thousand participation hours when you look at rugby. Okay. So that's the baseline there. Why is bodybuilding lower? So a couple things. One, it is not a sport that is solely determined by how much weight you can lift, like powerlifting, like Olympic weightlifting, like CrossFit in some cases, like strongman and highland games. So there's an inherent allowance for load management, meaning that you don't have to go heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier to beat the next person. You need to go heavier by a progressive overload, sure. But, you know, there's no direct competition with how much weight you can lift. So, and that, that's baked into the sport. So you don't necessarily need that. And the second thing that I think is probably most contributory uh, there, in addition, you know, and in in, that's separate from this load management deal is that 
Um, one of the most vulnerable positions you can place yourself in is you have to do a task, a physical activity that you um, are not prepared for, that you've never seen anything like it, that's totally different to you, it's totally foreign to you, and you have to do it at a high intensity. That would be problematic for you. And so you think events like Strongman, um, a lot of the implements the individuals may not have access to or not have access to the exact one that, or similar one that they're going to use in competition or the exact same weights or whatever. Same thing in Highland Games. A lot of stuff is kind of a uh, niche. But in bodybuilding, the actual variability in exercise is rather restricted. So sure, people might do a leg press and then a high bar squat and then a hack squat and then a sissy squat. Like those might be all variations that they run through in a certain cycle or series of cycles. Um, but they're all very related, meaning that the range of motion requirements are very similar. The trunk angle is very similar. The loading is very similar. Like it's all the same and it's restricted. You don't get these exercise variations that are way outside, that are way unrelated like you do in uh, Strongman Highland Games and sometimes CrossFit. Um, and then with respect to weightlifting, um, yeah, sometimes you uh, aren't able to do a lift in a certain way and you get way outside your you know, the technique that you've prepared for. Ideally, you have enough training history and enough uh, sort of movement variability if you're a weightlifter or powerlifter or crossfitter, strongman, or Highland Games, that you sort of have a really robust, really deep um, physical base that you've built over time that allows you to complete the task or at least attempt to complete the task without injuring yourself. But I think bodybuilding has a relative, re, relatively restricted uh, range of movement variability, and there's no inherent sort of uh, competition to see who can lift the most weight, which is why I think it has the lowest injury rate that's reported right now. Um, I don't think it's because it has anything to do, or certainly not much to do, with how fast the movements are, because <laughs> it's not one, it's not controlled in studies, and then two, uh, it just it's not it doesn't appear to be a big driver of injury risk, period, high velocity stuff, unless we're talking about accidents, so uncontrolled movements, um, dropping a weight on your foot, for example, or losing, uh, you know, uh, passing out, and then you crumple to the floor and the bar crushes you. Um, obviously, most, most injuries are accidental. Nobody means to get injured. But what I mean when I say uncontrolled movements at high velocity, I mean that, you know, there's no resistance to the movement at all. You're, again, the, and the weight therefore moves at high velocity. So that's uh, that can be problematic, but I don't think you can prevent that anyway. Um, most injuries that occur in the gym are not catastrophic, so that doesn't appear to happen very often. How do we know that? Because data suggests that on average for powerlifting, for example, that the duration of symptoms for an injury only lasts about 14 days. So since it's not catastrophic, and since the injury rates are pretty, pretty low, um, you know, what does that mean? Load management is probably the biggest biggest thing to take away. Yeah. All right. Do you think compound exercises are enough for arm hypertrophy? No, I do not. So there's a dose-dependent relationship between training volume and hypertrophy outcomes. And if you're not doing any direct arm work, you're not really training them with a lot of volume. It doesn't mean you need to jump in and start doing five sets of, you know, whatever, for curls and triceps press downs. But... I think if your goal is to have big, juicy arms, you're going to have to directly train them. Um, you can get some, you know, particularly individuals who are gifted can get a pretty decent return out of um, chin-ups and pull-ups and stuff like that, but it's not going to be enough 
especially not for the triceps with respect to pressing, no. When does strength gain become less attributed to neurological adaptation, but more of a physical hypertrophy adaptation? I don't know that I'd view them in isolation. They co-occur. It's just the relative rates. So if you want to think about this, early on in training, it's way more neurological than it is uh, structural. Okay, so just, you know, let's say it's 60-40, neurological, structural, early on in a training career. Later on, it flips. Maybe it's 30% neurological, 70% lean body mass increase, or 40-60. You know, obviously, there's going to be an individual variance with how that looks, but just later on, it's less about the neurological adaptations, more about the structural stuff. And again, it always depends how you're testing the strength because that answer may change. If we think of, if we think about maximal 1RM strength, if we're talking about speed velo- speed work, speed strength, or if we're talking about um, you know uh, uh, strength endurance or something like that. You've hinted a few times about a barbell medicine certification. Any more hints? Do you envision this just being for medical professionals only? Recommendation for someone pursuing this type of cert? Yeah. So the idea is that we'd have an entry level sort of like barbell medicine certification where you get good training in strength conditioning, you get good training in sort of the medical aspects of these lifestyle changes, which include resistance training, uh, cardiorespiratory fitness or aerobic training, um, dietary stuff, like other lifestyle modifications, pain and rehab, all that stuff, right? So you get, and uh, so you get that, you get all that stuff. Um, And then After that, there's these different tracks, so pain and rehab specialty, uh, medical profession sort of uh, of arm, and then like a strength conditioning arm. That would be the idea. So have some people working for this that are uh, getting paid, (laughs) and uh, yeah, that's where we're at. Kefir or milk? I mean, I don't care. I don't drink kefir because, you know, I just don't. Milk, I don't, I, I, I mean, if you want it, it's fine. <laughs> just don't have any firm thoughts about it. <laughs> I don't recommend against it or for it. It's just part of it. It's just a diet. You know, you can live a full and complete life not drinking milk as an adult. Um, ideally, you'd be breastfed, but that's for a whole nother deal. And I don't want to trigger anybody because people would be like, you don't need breast milk. And I'll be like, oh boy, here we go. Uh, let's see. I know it's abnormal, but if somebody is overeating on calories and a majority is protein, can that person get fat? Yes, because the additional energy from carbohydrates and fat that used to be used for fueling the body's processes, uh, is now not doing that since you have all this extra protein on board and you just will store more energy in the form of adipose tissue. Is there a point where weight becomes detrimental to health, even if it's predominantly lean body mass? Yeah, we think around the 30 BMI uh, area. There's actually a study that recently got published suggested that people with a high BMI and high amounts of lean body mass had the same health outcomes as people with a low BMI, or sorry, a high BMI and a low amount of lean body mass, and that cutoff was about 30. So if your BMI is over 30, that's probably not great for long-term health outcomes, even if you can squat 405 for a set of five. I'm planning to run the 13-week strength three template to prepare for a meet that's in 17 weeks. Suggestions on how to train during the four-week period before I start the template. Uh, I'd probably just do a GPP block. Yeah. So I'd probably do for most of the main lifts, I'd work up to a heavy set of six, one or two back off sets of six 
for and then for my accessory work I'd work in that sort of eight to twelve rep range. That's what I would do. Do some conditioning, do some curls. Oh yeah. Waist is almost 33 inches down from 42 inches. Any reason to eat at maintenance for a while or can I bulk right away? Yeah, I would eat at maintenance for a little bit, um, you know, a month probably. And, you know, I'll say that that's not based on like super, super strong evidence. Um, but the problem is when people lose weight, particularly a lot of fat mass, and they immediately um, eat more calories, they tend to replenish, restore, um, reclaim that fat mass that they just lost. So... I would not recommend like immediately gaining weight. That being said, your maintenance calories are now likely to be higher, like 400, 500 calories higher, which is good. All right. Oatmeal has been shown to reduce low-density lipoprotein, or LDL. Is there something special about oatmeal? Yep, it's the fiber. That's what's special. How do you approach conversations with clients or patients who are afraid of lifting big weights? Um, yeah, so I actually haven't had somebody you know, recently that I can remember that, you know, straight up told me that they were afraid of it. Um, I've had people with like anxiety about certain lifts because they built up like that their whole self-worth or their importance or value as a human based was based around this one workout's performance or lift one lifts performance. And so we had to, you know, kind of talk about setting expectations, being focused on the process, not necessarily outcome oriented, all that sort of stuff. Um, if somebody's actually scared about lifting heavy weights, I just ask them why and then go from there. <clears throat> While on a maintenance level of calories, is it possible to change your body composition, i.e. can you lose fat and gain muscle mass? The holy grail. Can you do it? Can you lose muscle mass or can you lose body fat and gain muscle mass? Sure. Particularly the newer you are, the more body fat you're carrying. So the less trained you are, the more body fat you're carrying, the more likely that this is going to work happen for you. But it can happen in uh, more advanced lifters too, particularly with those with uh, favorable genetics. But, you know, it's not a high percentage shot. It's like Kobe, three feet beyond the arc. It's Kobe, you know, but that's not a high percentage shot. RIP Kobe. Any thoughts of creating a barbell medicine beginner prescription slash template for nutrition? It is in the works. We're doing it. Yeah. If you were choosing between medical schools... What are some factors that you would consider in your decision? Uh, the first one I would honestly look at now in hindsight would just be price. So how expensive is it? So state school versus a private school. Is there a big price difference uh, after any scholarships that I may or may not have uh, qualified for? Then I would look at um, uh, sort of uh, availability for different specialties. So if I was, for instance, in, in, interested in like orthopedics or neurosurgery or whatever, and then one school had that in addition to all the other standard ones, which every school does. So every school has got an internal medicine program, right, or an emergency medicine program or OB and PEDS and family med, whatever that's, you know, most, if not all, have them. But not every school has got an orthopedics program, neurosurge program, ophthalmology program. So if I was interested in any program that one school didn't have and another school did, I'd probably favor the school that did have that because you can get – a letter from the program director there. You can do some uh, a, a rotation there, like all sorts. Just makes your life easier. And then location. So if one was like on a beach and you're a beach person, and one was like you know in the middle of nowhere, rural medicine. You know, I don't know. I think it's cool to have a good time while you're in med school. So those would probably be my big things I look for. All right, last question. I'm getting out of here. Would you ever recommend heavy biceps curls for one and three reps? Is the last question I'm gonna do tonight. 
<laughs> yeah, so if you're entering like 100% raw or whatever federation still does the one RM biceps curls, you're going to have to train that. So I would gradually work into it if you haven't had any exposure to it. But yeah, that's when I would recommend doing heavy biceps curls. For people who are not going to enter that, eh. If you just want to see how strong you get your 1RM biceps curl, which is just as arbitrary as seeing how heavy you can get your 1RM deadlift, fine. But uh, yeah. Okay, so look, thank you guys so much for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine Instagram Live. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum once again. So look, if you're watching this on Instagram, do me a favor. Send it to one of your friends. Be like, hey, watch this. It's almost as good as a podcast. Uh, Also, go to our website. Sign up for our newsletter. It's about to drop. And would love to be in your inbox every month, the latest health and fitness information. That'd be great. New merch is going to come to the shop soon. We'll keep you posted on that. Thank you guys so much for watching. Have an excellent rest of your Tuesday. See ya.